It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, This morning, we consider a cruel truth. And I'll ask that you turn in the scriptures to Job 11 if you haven't already. And many of you, you have good categories for this already. So let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Yes, my husband, dear, your added years and pounds means you cannot fit into those pants any longer. You tried really hard, but you still lost. You're not as smart, cool, or attractive as you think. (laughs) You love to dance, but you probably shouldn't do it in public. The Vikings have zero Super Bowl wins. The Packers have four Super Bowl wins. These are indeed cruel truths. Truths so vile, you hate to even repeat them. You see, my friends, the Christian worldview has always been one where we are instructed to not lie. We are to always tell the truth. And and it's on this point that there's two extremes or two ditches that we tend to fall into. The first extreme or ditch is to bend the truth, to make it more palatable. We soften it so it's not offensive to anyone at any time. Well, the second extreme or opposite ditch is to tell the truth and to purposefully or ignorantly communicate it in an untactful, sinful, or even cruel way. And it's the second extreme that we'll be considering this morning. And our main idea is this. Faithful followers of Christ have more than right theology. We have more than just the right theology. And here's a quick cultural insight and a word of challenge to us. Do you want to know what drives people away, my age and younger, from the church at large and considering Christianity? Believe it or not, it's not usually things like the virgin birth, the idea of Jesus doing miracles, or even the conviction that there is ultimate accountability and justice for our actions in this life. What seems to be an overarching response of recent years is the accusation, and sometimes it's a false accusation, but the accusation of hypocrisy in local churches and individual believers. People saying they believe Jesus is the Savior. People saying that Jesus and his gospel, it changes everything. And then turning around and acting no different than a lost world who doesn't have Jesus in their hearts. Now, faithful Bible-believing Christians are to be commended when they don't bend the truth or lie, when they don't make the Scriptures more palatable. The aim should always be to say what God has revealed in the Scriptures. No more and certainly no less. But... We cannot only possess a right theology or truth. We must, at the same time, possess a Christ-likeness. And if you don't think this is a problem in our church and culture, notice how quiet it's gotten in here. (laughs) Which brings us to Job 11 and to our friend Zophar. 
Zophar is the third of our friends, and his temperament and disposition and his strategy with Job is a little different than that of Eliphaz, who we covered last week in chapters 4 and 5. Our friend this week, as one writer suggested, should be better known as Zophar the Zinger. He's a man who has a lot of good to share, even clearly biblical ideas and understandings of God. But he communicates them in a way that serves no friend well. But before we consider Zophar's zingers, look at the screen, and I'll put up here, notice the pattern of our poetic interactions between Job and his three friends. We see this in a number of places in the scriptures, but there's kind of a a cyclical pattern to the events and conversations that unfold after Job's terrible suffering and his cry in the first three chapters. Satan, remember, has accused God of running a protection racket. The accuser tells God that people only love him because he provides for them. Satan says that no one's heart has really been changed. So God points to Job as an example of God working in hearts. And God restrains but allows Satan to attack. So God is to defend his own glory and, and prove that his promises are true. God loses near, uh, Job rather, I'm sorry, Job loses nearly everything. And in a whirlwind of pain, confusion, and deep hurt, Job is surrounded by his friends as they rock back and forth in the ashes. Job cries out finally in chapter 3, sharing dark thoughts and dark words, and the cycle begins. Eliphaz counsel. Job responds. Bildad chimes in. Job responds. Zophar comes in with his zings. Job responds. And the pattern happens three times as these friends chew on the fat of life, suffering, and theology. So let's listen in on Zophar's take. Read with me, please, Job 11. Verses 1 through 20. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should, should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But, but oh, that God would speak. And open his lips to you. And then he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding. When a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, 
you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. And the darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest and security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. This is the word of God. Zophar is a good friend who wants to communicate truth and a right theology about God. First, he describes God as an exacting God in verses 1 through 6. Now, unlike Eliphaz, who cited secret knowledge and understanding, or Bildad, some of you are going to name your kids after Bildad, right? Unlike Bildad, who pointed to the human tradition of men, this friend makes it a largely theological conversation. There's always one theological nerd of the group, and here it's so far. In each section, let me break it up into two categories. The truths that Zophar shares and the zings that he shoots across the table. So the truths of an exacting God. Look again at verse 2. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Well, that's a very poetic way to tell Job that a lot of talk usually means you're guilty. Proverbs 10.19 says, When words are many, transgression or sin is not lacking. Parents, you know this well. It's like when you ask their kid what they did and the story somehow gets longer and longer and longer and longer. Okay, okay, I get it. You're talking too much. You're probably hiding something. You're probably wrong. You're probably sinning somehow. This is certainly a true concept. When there's the blabber of the mouth, when there's an overtalk, Scripture says, common sense says, this person is probably sinful. So Zophar is not wrong in making that observation. Truth. Well, how about verse 3? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? Essentially, wise people should counsel foolish talkers. Proverbs 26.5 says, Answer a fool according to their folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Zophar is right again. We shouldn't necessarily just let people babble on and speak in non-truths, lies, or misunderstandings that mock God. There are times when we or someone should speak up and challenge someone who thinks that they know more than they actually do. But notice what Zophar says of God in verse 5 and 6. God has wisdom. God speaks corrective truth and judges. Yes, yes, 
Yes, this is true. The scriptures plainly teach that God is God. His divine nature is one in which he knows and sees and understands and moves in a way that is above our capacity and comprehension. Everything Zophar says is true. But now for the zings. Look at verse 3. You're a babbler. You're a babbler and a fool. Now, perhaps this isn't the most polite thing to say to someone crying out in pain, but it's not exactly the worst zing, and it's not the most hurtful thing to say either, right? I think Zophar is getting a little punchy. Uh, Maybe some of that Minnesota passive aggressiveness is coming out, so so he steps it up. And read the end of verse 6. Know then that God exacts of you Less than your guilt deserves. You deserve worse. Now, I'll admit, this is a real shocker to me. (laughs) Just imagine, Job, Job, my friend, my friend, you've lost 10 children. Your livelihood. You've lost your wealth, your home, your health, your comfort. You've lost your dreams. I've traveled for months. I've made an appointment to come here and tell you, you deserve worse. It's the equivalent of going to someone off the heels of receiving news of cancer or experiencing a miscarriage or losing their job or struggling with deep questions and you saying, friend, you deserve worse. Worse stuff could have happened to you, and you should have gotten that. You can, you can, I think, make a very narrow theological argument that this does have some truth to it. Paul, the apostle, does tell us that the wages, the compensation, the outcome of our sinful disposition and our choices is death, punishment, and eternal justice. The Bible does teach that sin deserves punishment, and that is the very reason that Jesus came to save sinners, to die for sinners, to take their punishment on his behalf. So some of this is right, and some of it is right as we, especially as we seek to explain the nature of sin and salvation to those who are far from God. But it's only right if Job is sinning which he hasn't. It's a whole other thing to go to Job, an imperfect, self-admitted sinner who faithfully follows God and inform him that he's lost everything, but he deserves more. What a terrible and a tragic thing to say to someone in the midst of deep, dark suffering. This must be a teaching tool for us, Lakewood. Zophar has some right theology, but we must have more than that. Zophar assumes on Job's character and sadly doesn't offer words of life, but he offers words of condemnation and death to his friend. Can we admit that there's a callousness that we often have? a callousness to the suffering of people that we think are in the wrong. And I'll confess that I'm guilty of this myself. 
we tend to be very callous if someone suffers and we think that maybe for a moment they deserve it. But Zophar, he doesn't just point to God being an exacting God. He says that God is a wise God in verses 7 through 12. So I want to follow the same pattern of our last section, and I'm going to point out theological truths and some zingers. So let's start with the truth. Verses 7 through 10. We read a very challenging and poetic interrogation, an interrogation in a question time from so far to his suffering friend. Questions like, can you know? Can you find out? What can you do? Can you stop God? And these are good questions. And the point being that God possesses deeper knowledge than you. That we're not as smart as we think. And again, I think we can give a hearty amen to Zophar's theological description of God and the truth that he gives to Job for consideration. And that's true because the Old and New Testaments, whether it's law, prophets, wisdom, literature, gospels, or epistles, from beginning to end, the scriptures plainly teach that God is above his creation. God reigns supreme over kings and rulers. He knows limits, circumstances, hearts. He knows the future, and he knows the depths of the world and human sin. Ironically, it's this truth that Zophar is failing to consider in his own understanding of Job's situation. God knows Job's circumstance. He allowed it. God knows Job's heart. He sustained it. God knows Job's innocence. He's defended it to Satan. Yes, God knows, and as verse 11 says, God, God his knowledge, his surpassing knowledge, is not what just gives him the insight, but the authority to respond to sin. True. Yes, yes, and yes. A right theology again, and perhaps we give Zophar an A on the test. But notice again the zing. Read with me verse 12 again. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Sometimes you hear an insult and you're not quite sure what it means. Kids sometimes call each other's things, and you're not quite sure what those kids are communicating. Uh, just this past week, one of my children recently threw this zinger at one of the other children in the house. You, you are just like George Mueller's father. <laughs> what? <laughs> Most of you maybe have no idea what that means, and is it even an insult? And if you're not familiar with this missionary who served orphans his whole life, you might not know about whose father, <laughs> uh, or and how that might be an insult to you. And I think it's really cute that that was the worst thing they could say in that moment. Can I suggest in the same way, my friends, in the same way, Verse 12 may be a little lost in translation to you and I, although you can probably make a guess. 
One writer helpfully explained this zinger this way. Verse 12. The point of this clever but cruel proverb is that it is more probable that a wild donkey would give birth to a full-grown man than that idiot Job would apply the wisdom of Zophar's brilliant sermon. Someone else explained that Zophar is saying that there is no natural way for Job to be changed from a stupid man to a wise man. Job, you are a donkey. We might say it a little more colorfully in our day. Job, you're an idiot. You're too dumb to understand what I'm telling you. You're too dumb to understand who God is and what he's doing in this world. You're too dumb to realize you're in the wrong. Job, I'm sorry you've suffered. You deserve worse than you got, and you're stupid. Does this kind of name-calling to a friend or to the world around us change anything? Does it? If you call someone a donkey, will they change their view of God? Will they change the, the decisions they make in life as it relates to morality, family, personal sin, politics, financial decisions, and all the rest? Will that change it? No. No, we need more than a right theology. When we want to see change in others, we do not speak in this way. We speak true, convicting, and life-filled words. The words of Christ and his scripture. And I think it'd be wise of us to confess that too often we're like Zophar in our communication with whoever they is at the moment. But God is not just a, an exacting God and a wise God. Zophar says that God is a rewarding God. And I get this from verses 13 through 20. And again, an appeal is made to the character of God. So let's consider again the description, the truths of a sovereign Lord and the zinger. Verses 13 through 19 are a wonderful, beautiful description of God graciously changing things for those who repent and trust in him. Fundamentally, Zophar's right. When someone turns from sin, rebellion, anger, or callousness from God, and instead turns to trusting in his promises, God changes and restores your relationship with him. You were far off, God brings you near. It's a wonderful gospel, good news promise to Zophar, to Job, and to anyone here this morning. Trusting in the person of God and following the ways of God, yes, it does change things. Perhaps not always the way you'd like or think, but certainly the Spirit of God makes changes in your mind and in your heart as you navigate this life of faith. The gospel 
It changes your response to trial. It changes your love for God and others. It changes and recalibrates where your ultimate loyalty is placed. It even changes your eternal destiny in the next life. And if you're here this morning and you recognize in some way, in some capacity, you need change in your life, in your heart, in your future, in your relationship with God, then take Zophar's message seriously. Consider in a fresh way the gospel and a call to repentance. The Savior is Jesus who came and lived and died and rose again so that you and I would be brought near to God and experience His blessing and His presence. Zophar is right. God is a rewarding God to those who cling to Him and His promises. If only He has stopped there. The zing. Look again in verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. Essentially, Job, you don't see because you're wicked. The principle in itself has some truth to it. Paul does have words for the spiritually blind, for those who are rebellious against God and hating his ways. But is that Job? Is that Job? Does Zophar know for certain that Job falls into this sinful category? Or like Eliphaz and Bildad, has this friend made assumptions and is ignorant of his ignorance? Zophar thinks he sees clearly, but Job is innocent. Zophar has said many truthful things of God, but has wrongly interpreted the situation in Job's character. He's added some zingers to add insult to injury. Job, I know you've lost everything. Let me tell you about God. And by the way, you deserve worse, you're a stupid donkey, and simply put, you're spiritually blind like a wicked man. Thanks, friend. Here's the application for us, Lakewood. It really boils down to a question. Will we faithfully follow the words and the commands of Christ or not? We live in polarizing times. We live in a post-Christian society. The culture, even church culture, falls into the trap of attacking and maligning anyone who disagrees with them, even a little. Like Zophar, like the world around us, we resort to zings, put-downs, passive-aggressive comments, and full-out slander against the one that we think is wrong. And we do it in the name of Jesus, baptized in Christian language, convinced we see it clearly, and we'll even find Scripture passages out of context to drop the hammer on whoever they is currently at the moment. Faithful followers of Christ, my friends, we find ourselves in the exact same place that the early church did in the book of Acts. We are a minority 
to the unbelieving world around us. So how will we speak to one another? How will we speak to brothers and sisters in our local church who we disagree with? How will we speak to friends who see it a little differently, this world, than we do? How will we speak to neighbors and friends and family? And how will we speak on social media into an onlooking world? I certainly hope we will speak plainly, truthfully, boldly, convictionally the truths of scriptures. And faithful followers of Christ have more than right theology. We speak and communicate as God's word has commanded us to. So hear the commands of the scriptures with our speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, only building up, giving grace to those who hear. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak and post. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Jesus, his work, his gospel, it changes everything. He changes your heart. He changes the trajectory of your eternal future. He changes your relationships. He changes your loyalty. He changes your sin. And he changes the way you speak, even when you're saying true things. This week, may we uphold both right theology, truth, and conviction, but also display a Christ-like character while doing so. So, Lakewood, brothers and sisters, I have to confess sin in this area. I'm a fairly reserved man, so often my zingers don't come out, but I think them. And if you have spoken in a way that is harmful and sinful, there is grace for you in the gospel of Christ. If you hear Zophar's message to his friend, and it hits a little close to home because it's very much like your character. Right theology, but in the name of truth, harming people. Then can I just say that this may be a good opportunity for you and I to go to our spouses, our children, our friends, and our neighbors and to confess sin. And the Savior that we're about to sing about in a second, the one who's strong and kind, he's strong and kind and faithful, that when we confess our sin, he forgives us. That when we ask him to enable us to uphold this Holy Spirit balance of truth and grace, that he can help us to do it. 
So my friends, would you pray with me that God would enable us to complete this great and difficult task? Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we're thankful that even though some of us are like Zophar, or some of us have had well-meaning friends like Zophar speak to us in unhelpful ways, in contrast, Jesus, you have always proven yourself to be strong and kind. You have always proven yourself to be the counselor and the comforter. You have always proven yourself to have that right balance of truth and grace. Thank you. Thank you for not only modeling it to us, but thank you for promising that by your Spirit, you can enable us to do the same. Thank you for the good news that the gospel doesn't merely secure us for heaven, but the gospel changes everything, even how we speak. Lord, as we said, if, if there's a relationship we need to mend, if there's words that we've said that have been harmful, would you prompt us and give us opportunity to make it right this week? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.